Turn to Romans chapter 13. Have you ever thought about just what you're living for? What drives you? What are you motivated by? I mean, really, if you had to put down on paper, I am motivated by this. What is it? Recognition? Do you want the realization of dreams? Financial success? Personal success? Good grades? That championship trophy? Parents, coaches, peers, esteem? What is it that really motivates and moves you? What you're going to find is what drives your life is determined by what you value in your heart. Whatever really is important to you inside is really going to dictate kind of the patterns and what you're willing to sacrifice and what you're going to do. And you will find that oftentimes we live a rather self-absorbed life. It's really about me. What can I get? What is the, what's in it for me? And our culture has a way of reinforcing the value of a self-absorbed, self-centered life. When you come to the gospel and you come specifically to the book of Romans, you're going to find that what happens is like as we've made our way through this book, that the book of Romans shows us just how self-centered we are and how deep sin has worked itself into every aspect of our being. In fact, it literally shows that we're dead in all of our trespasses and sins. But once it shows us our spiritual condition, then what it does is it lifts up and points out Christ, who is absolutely perfect, holy, who is the one who provides righteousness. And it calls people to believe and trust singularly in Christ. That's what the book of Romans does. And so by the time you get to Romans chapter 12, It is saying, based on the virtue that you are believing and united with Christ, present your bodies as a living and holy sacrifice. See your life as a life of worship. And if we're going to live this way, where we see our lives as a life of worship, you you need to understand that is rooted in having love. A love for God and a love for others. A lifestyle of worship is really found in a lifestyle of love. So why is it so important to understand what a life motivated by love really looks like? Why is that so critically important? You see, if we don't understand this, then what happens is we just kind of move into self-preservation mode. We don't really want to extend ourselves in love because we don't want to get hurt again. But what happens is we become self-absorbed, and it actually has a deteriorating effect upon our life. So as we've been making our way through the book of Romans, when he came to Romans 13, verse 7, it's as if he is beginning like what we would call a a crescendo. He sounds a note, and it just keeps building and building. So if you see in verse 7, he says, Render to all what is due them, tax to whom taxes due, custom to whom custom, fear to whom fear, honor to whom honor. It's like it's just building up, but the apex, the, like the triple forte at the end of the crescendo, is verse 8. Owe nothing to anyone except to love one another, for he who loves his neighbor has fulfilled the law. We don't live our lives just out of fear of punishment or just trying to do the right thing. Really, God wants his people to express lives of love, to live a love motivated life. So, why is this so important? And how do you do it? That's what this text in Romans shows us. 
You remember when Jesus was asked, what's the foremost commandment of them all? Remember that? And he said, you can find it in Mark chapter 12, verse 29. He answered, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. He is one God. And that you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. That is the greatest commandment. It is to love God with everything that you have. But he says, and the second is this. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. You see, when you have a genuine love for God, when you're beholding Christ, and you realize the greatness of God's love for you, there will be translated at a horizontal level a love for other people. It's how it's designed. It's what you and I are made for. We are to live a life motivated by love. This will break down the self-centered life that even as Christians, we can still be very self-occupied. What God is seeking to do is to bring about a Christ-centeredness in our life. And so when you look at a life motivated by the love of Christ, you're going to find two things that are going to be true, and they're spelled out here in Romans 13, 8 through 10. The first is that this kind of love guides us to follow and fulfill God's law. So you see verse 8. He says, owe nothing to anyone except to love one another. For he who loves his neighbor has fulfilled the law. Now, before we dive into loving your neighbor, this particular verse is used by some people to say, like, you can never have any debt. You've you met people like that. Like, you can't have a house debt. You can't have a car debt. You, you shouldn't ever have debt, okay? Actually, uh, when the Bible talks about debt, it not only talks about that it doesn't prohibit it, but it actually permits it. But it also speaks about how it's to be regulated. And what this text is saying, kind of as he's transitioning, if you owe taxes, pay them. He's saying, owe nothing to anyone. You pay your debts off. Don't put yourself in situations where you can't do that. Okay? Don't buy things that you don't need. Live below your means. Pay your debts. And I'm like, this was an amazing sermon right here on this week, right? You got taxes, taxes that are due, you should pay them, right? But it is segueing into there is one debt that we can never fully pay. And that is the debt that we owe to love one another. And the love that he's talking about here is the agape love. It's a love that is based on a commitment of a will. It's a choice. It's, it may very well involve emotion, but it's not driven by emotion. It is to choose to love individuals. It's the kind of love that God has for us. Even while we were yet sinners, we're despising God. We're totally self-centered. We're all about us. God still loves us. And in fact, he demonstrates his love. God says, I want to accomplish that kind of love in you. So that when people see you loving like this, they're going to see me. And so it's not based on emotion. It's based on a choice. Now, when it talks about loving your neighbor, verse 8, well, that would really, that would be who? That would be fellow Christians. You and I are called to love one another. Jesus said this, remember, all men are going to know that you are my disciples if you what? If you love one another. It should be that as people observe 
us loving one another, Christians loving one another, that they're like, I want that kind of love. It should be desirable. I remember as a non-believer, when I saw genuine Christians and kind of a whole new level of respect and care and concern and commitment that they had to one another, wasn't superficial. It wasn't like conditional. That was attractive. I would like that. He says, that's the kind of love that we are to have. Remember, Jesus made some rather significant statements. And like in Matthew 25, like beginning in verse 35, when he, he said this, you know, like, I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. And when I was thirsty, you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. I was naked, you clothed me. I was sick, you visited me. I was in prison, you came to me. And he said, truly, truly, I say to you, that to the extent that you did it to one of these brothers of mine, even to the least of them, you did it to me. Remember that? When we care and extend love to other believers, it's really an expression of love for Christ. Profound. Why is that true? Because as Christians, we are inextricably united with Christ. So united are believers with Christ that to express love to another believer, even the quote-unquote least of them, is to show love to Christ. So when he says in Romans 13, 8, to owe nothing to anyone except to love one another, that most certainly means Christians. But it also means the non-believer. It could even mean your enemy. Love your neighbor. So, for instance, it's always important that you take the Bible in context. So, as we've been making our way through the book of Romans, in Romans chapter 12, remember verse 14, he said what? Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. You see that? Or look at Romans uh, 12, 20. But if your enemy is hungry, what are you supposed to do? Feed him. And if he's thirsty, give him a drink. For in so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. The idea is that you show love even to the people that are hard to love, even if they are the quote-unquote so-called enemies. And the whole, remember the burning coals? That was kind of an Egyptian sign of repentance. They put these burning coals, they carried around on their head, and it's indicating I'm burning off, I'm turning from this wrong way of thinking. And where does this all come from? Well, it comes from Jesus. Remember when Jesus is giving a Sermon on the Mount, and uh, they were talking about uh, who they should love and, and who, who they should not, and under the Sermon on the Mount, they would say, you've heard it said that you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemies. And that's what the Jewish rabbis taught. After all, they're the Gentiles. They despise God. You should hate them. God hates them. That's kind of the idea. And it explains a lot of their behavior. But Jesus said, you know what? That's not how it's supposed to be. You're even supposed to love those who persecute you. If your enemy is hungry, you even care for them. This is my kind of love. This is the love of God. And it's not based on feelings. And notice what he says in the text. He says, you will fulfill the law. Now, this is something really important. Does loving people make you right with God? Is it by doing good things that we earn God's favor? A lot of people are pretty confused on the issue. They think that Christianity is kind of something that is earned and attained in the sense of earning God's favor. But the work of Romans makes it crystal clear following the law doesn't make you righteous. In fact, in Romans 3.20, he says, because of the works of the law, 
no flesh will be justified. Doing good things, even trying to follow the law, doesn't make you right with God. It shows you your need. In fact, he goes on to say, through the law comes the knowledge of sin. You and I can't love like this, right? So that's why we need someone who can. And the only person that truly can love like this is Jesus. And so he does. He lives a perfect life. He is fully righteous. And by virtue of his death, paying for our sins, and his resurrection, which guarantees that he can genuinely give spiritual life to all who believe, you and I receive his righteousness when we believe. And we're united with him. Jesus said, don't think I came to abolish the law. I came to fulfill it. And because I fulfilled it, I can give you righteousness. And I can also empower you to love as I am asking. And so that's what we have here. Now, he says, love your neighbor. So the question is, who is your neighbor then? Who do I need to love? There was, uh, I was reading about this, this guy, Ed Arida. He was writing me in church one day. Him and his wife were sitting back there. And uh, the pastor was teaching on Matthew 19, 19, about love your neighbor as yourself. And it seemed like it was kind of a rainy day. People were a little tired. They weren't paying attention. So he slips into one of the great rhetorical devices, and that is repetition. So he goes, who is my neighbor? And he says it even louder. Who is my neighbor? And then, who is my neighbor? You know how some people can just work themselves up in a ladder, you know, like, who is my neighbor? You know, and he's, he's doing that. And behind Ed was a little boy who's sitting, and he happened to be paying attention to the message. And every time the pastor would say, who is my neighbor, he'd say, Mr. Rogers. And then the pastor would say it louder, and he'd say, Mr. Rogers, louder. And then finally, Mr. Rogers is your neighbor, you know? Don't you know? Mr. Rogers. We spent a whole, we, we invested a lot of money to indoctrinate an entire generation so that you know that Mr. Rogers is your neighbor. And that one boy knew it. Who is your neighbor? Your neighbor is anyone you're doing life with. It's the people you come in contact with. Your family. Neighbors. Folks you're going to school with, they are your neighbors. People you work with. People you go to church with. The people we interface are our neighbors. And what this text is calling for is a Christ-centered love. Sourced in Christ, manifesting His life, and it's going to show up in your attitudes. Like, for instance, you're caring, accepting, encouraging, you're respectful. So much of how you carry yourself communicates what's going on here and what's really important to you. You see, love isn't just an attitude, though. It needs to be expressed. And so you show this kind of love with your words, like being appreciative or thankful or forgiving or asking for forgiveness or sharing experiences and wisdom or, and, and teaching These are putting words to a love that God is cultivating in your heart. But, of course, it's easy to say, I love you, but can you show it? And so we put our love into action, like extending help, engaging in relationships, investing in another person. God wants to break the shackles of self-centeredness so that Christ-centered life emerges. A love for God being translated for a love for other people. You see, a life, a life motivated by the love of Christ, it's going to guide us to fulfill and follow God's law. This is how we are to live. And it gives us His Spirit to make that a possibility. But let me tell you something else it does. A love 
that is motivated by Christ is going to guard us from doing wrong to others. It's going to prevent you from harming other individuals. Look what he says, beginning in verse 9. For this, this whole idea of fulfilling the law by loving your neighbor, for this you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and if there's any other commandment, it is summed up in this saying, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. For love does no wrong to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfillment of the law. When we love people, we aren't going to be harming people. And so he starts picking off some of the Ten Commandments, the Seventh, the Sixth, the Eighth, and the Tenth. Six of the Ten Commandments deal with relationship at a horizontal. And he says, for this, because we're called to love people, to love our neighbor, you shall not commit adultery. Adultery is having some sort of sexual relationship as a married person with someone who is not your spouse. Loving people doesn't harm individuals. Loving people wants the best for them. Now, I know in our culture, the idea is like, you know, we adultery is it's just so rampant in our culture. And, and it's, it's sick. And when it goes under the guise, like, oh, I really felt it in my heart. I really love this individual. And this is my, my true soulmate, right? And so I just couldn't help myself. And I, and I gave myself, and I'm experiencing love. That is just a bunch of baloney. Because every time you've got adultery, adultery is always selfish. The focus is on me, not we. And when you've got adultery going on, man, I, I tell you, people that are involved in adultery, they rarely consider the implications. That's very interesting when you're dealing with people that are on track with adultery or they're in it. They don't consider what it's doing to their spouse. They hardly consider what's going to happen with the kids. And if so, it's just, just in the short term. Never the, the long-term implications. Uh, they don't realize what it does to your soul and your life. It, it's, it's devastating, far beyond what you might imagine. You might think it's going to taste good, and maybe it does for a few minutes on the outside, but it literally is going to shred you. But here's something that they never think about, and I, I like to put it on the table. Have you thought about your grandkids or the grandkids that will eventually probably emerge on the scene, the implications of your decision? Friends, we're called to love people. That means we want their best interest. We love them. That's why we would not commit adultery. Or he says, you shall not murder. That is the unlawful killing of another person. And to do so with malice. Okay? You're, you're not to kill people. We're called to love people, right? And don't you find it just interesting? Like, that is a major issue with God. Murdering individuals, God takes, like, super seriously. You can't read the Old Testament very far. You see, like, right after the flood, God establishes that life is critically important. And if you take the life of another, you murder someone, you maliciously go do it, you forfeit your life. And you see that. You see it all through the Old Testament. You see different aspects of that even in the New Testament where that is the understood principle. We spent actually some two weeks talking about that subject. 
Why does God take murder so seriously? Well, think of it this way. Let's say we have an ambassador from our country, and we're going to send her to another country, and she is going to represent the United States. And so she does. She represents us. In fact, she is like an image bearer of our nation. She represents our views, what we think, what's important to us. If you go and someone should attack and kill our ambassador, do you know what that is? That is not only murder, that is an act of war against our country. Why? Because she represents us. She's, she wears the image of our nation. The reason that God takes murder so seriously and the consequences are so harsh is because you and I are made in the image of God. He made us. He created us. We are made in His image. We reflect personality and reflect, as, reflect aspects of His character. And to kill willfully, maliciously, one of His own that He made in His image is like declaring an act of war against God. And that's why it's so serious. It says we're called to love our neighbor, not to murder them or another. You shall not steal. This is to take another person's property without permission or legal right, and you have no intention of returning of it. And there's just something about us that people have a propensity to steal. You don't have to teach children how to steal. They just kind of start doing it. Like, where did you learn that? Now, you can teach them how to do it better, right? You can get really good at stealing. And, and people are. And it shouldn't surprise you. There's, there's like urges, like, oh, I have to make that happen. No one would see this would be so cool if I had this, and next thing you know, it's in your pocket, right? The problem is, is that we're called to love. And that means that we're not stealing something that doesn't belong to us. I was reading of this evangelist, J. John. He's an English evangelist, and he was doing a series on the Ten Commandments in Liverpool in May of 2001. And he gave a sermon on thou shall not steal. Okay? And it was, it was just pretty amazing what happened. He spoke of the subject of why stealing is wrong and it's not a reflection of loving God. And, and these conscience-stricken people, they started bringing all the stuff that they had stolen over the years, and they started bringing it to the church. Okay? So he's, he preaches these messages, and people start bringing stuff to these churches. And like anything from hospital crutches, library books, CDs, videotapes, money. There were several letters of confession, anything from computers to shovels. And they started bringing these things back because they were, their conscience was stricken. This is wrong. This isn't loving people. This is taking advantage of them. And then he goes, just one more. You shall not covet. This is kind of that inordinate desire for something or someone that doesn't belong to you. But you're, you're consumed by it. You want it. It drives your behavior. That's not love. That's probably lust. It's sin. That's not what God wants for you. Why do we do these things? What's going on? Because it's a heart issue. All these things, where do they get started from? They get started in here. That's why Jesus said, remember Matthew 15, verse 19, out of the heart comes evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornication, thefts, false witnesses, slanders. Where does all this come from? All of this comes from a heart that has got a bent toward evil. 
you and I can't change our behavior. Like, we're going to do some behavior modification. We're going to just try to stop. What you and I need is heart transformation, and there's only one that can do that, and that is God. And he fully intends to do it. Uniting us with Christ, having us continually turn from our sin, trusting in Christ, so that from the heart we live differently. And so it's why we're always coming back to, I need Jesus, because I'm a very sinful individual, and I want to do what is wrong. Right? Don't you face those struggles? So what do you do? Just go for it? No. You don't follow the moment, the fleeting emotion. What you do is you turn to Christ and say, God, help me. Even on the simple point here of God, help me to love my neighbor. That's why... And like Proverbs 4.23, it says, Watch over your heart with all diligence, for from it flow the springs of life. What's going on in here has a way of flowing out. When you've got a lot of trouble going on inside your head and your heart, deal with it and address it and come to Jesus with it. Because if you don't, it is going to come out your life, and it is not going to be pretty. You're going to cause all sorts of problems in your family. You're going to try to blow up this church. You're going to cause wreckage in your neighborhood. You're going to be the source of problems at work. Why? Because you haven't dealt with the heart issues. So we look at this text, and he says, if there's any other commandment, whether it be like to forgive or to pray for or to not be embittered by or to care for, he says, if any other commandment, it's summed up in this saying, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. You want to go God's way? It's a life motivated by love. You know, love is, is powerful. <laughs> it, it is so good in, like, any situation. It's kind of like, love is like a Swiss Army knife. You guys got one of those Swiss Army knives? I mean, those, are, those are cool. I mean, look at that thing. You know how many things you can do with that? I mean, you could probably build a building. You could perform surgery. If you have to do an amputation, you get a saw there. You get thirsty afterwards, you can open up a bottle on the bottle of Coke you got there. You can do so much with that little gadget, that little Swiss Army knife, right there, huh? That's good for lots of situations. That's what love is like. Don't be all worried, like, oh, what am I supposed to do here? Oh, how am I supposed to interface with this situation, this difficult person? Just do this, friends. Just love your neighbor. Jesus, help me. Love covers a multitude of sins. Love makes you powerful. Love breaks you out of the mundane. And now I find that it's, it's just walking with Christ and, and seeing him like as my friend. He's my Lord of my life, but I've got this personal relationship with him. He gives me the strength. And in all my failings, and I, I want you to know that studying these texts, this is difficult news for me. Because I actually have more failures than I have successes. I wish it wasn't true. But it is. I desperately need Jesus. I need to know that I'm forgiven. I need to know that it's been settled at the cross. I need to know that there is strength for today and bright hope for tomorrow. Why? Because I am united with Christ. That's what keeps my head up. That's what keeps me moving forward. Yeah, I'm woefully inadequate loving my neighbor. But good thing I have Jesus. And any strides made in a positive direction on that front are because of him. You know, love is its like the, the simple notes. Like, for instance, there's only seven notes in music. Did you know that? Okay. And you can teach like a little kid the seven notes. And they can learn it like in an hour. And yet the variations of these notes 
You could be the most brilliant composer. Think of Handel, Beethoven. They could spend a lifetime and could never exhaust the amazing variations of all these things and coming together and when they come together and how long they're held. And you could produce beautiful music. That's what love is like every day. In just all your little interactions, what it's doing is it's creating a masterpiece. Just showing love in this situation, in this relationship, in this difficulty. The love that we have in Christ. And friends, it's powerful. Can I also tell you that if you don't have this kind of love flowing from your life, it's very evident. I was reading this anonymous paraphrase of 1 Corinthians 13, 1 through 3, and it's, it's, it's written to help missionaries understand the importance of this kind of love. But I find it's got a lot of application for all of us. Listen to this paraphrase. It says, If I know the language perfectly and speak like a native and have not God's love for them, I am nothing. If I have diplomas and degrees and know all the updates and the up-to-date methods and have not his touch of understanding love, I am nothing. If I am able to argue successfully against the religions of the people and make fools of them and have not his willing note, I am nothing. If I have all faith and great ideals and magnificent plans and not his love that sweats and bleeds and weeps and prays and pleads, I am nothing. If I give my clothes and money to them and, not, and have not his love for them, I am nothing. If I surrender all prospects, I leave home and friends, make the sacrifices of a missionary career, turn sour and selfish amid the daily annoyances and slights of a missionary life, and have not the love that yields its rights, its leisures, its pet plans, I am nothing. Virtue has ceased to go out of me. If I can heal all manner of sickness and disease, but wound hearts and hurt feelings for want of his love that is kind, I am nothing. If I can write articles or publish books that would applause, but fail to transcribe the word of the cross into the language of his love, I am nothing. See, friends, our lives are to reflect God and his love. That's what really matters. I think many of you are familiar with Patty Davis, early 1980s. She was one of the lead protesters of the... Uh, build-up of nuclear arms, and she was like one of the leading spokespeople for that movement. And she would speak at, rally, at rallies, criticizing build-up of nuclear arms, nuclear arm policies. She was extremely critical of the Reagan administration. And that really, uh, like, appalled her mother. Because Patty Davis's dad was Ronald Reagan. And these were really coming across as personal attacks, even though she would say it's not personal. She'd make her appearances. She, she's been writing about her experiences with her dad. And in 2012, January issue of Town and Country, she admitted that she really had chosen a rather militant path, kind of an in-your-face approach, including with her dad. She admits now that it was really a child railing against a parent, nothing more. I was at war with my father. She starts to write about some of these regrets that she has. Like, she always turned down her dad. Her dad apparently always wanted to talk with her. Like, let's, let's talk about what you really think and what you believe. And she just turned it down and just said, I already know what you believe. Very rude about it. She also re- expressed in this article uh, extreme regret about a particular rally that took place in 1982 at the Rose Bowl. 100,000 people had gathered in attendance for this anti-nuclear rally. 
And they were chanting, get a new president, get a new president. And she was up to speak. And she said that every fiber of her being told her not to go up there. But she did. And as it would be, no one remembered her speech. They just remembered that the president's daughter was up there to lead the charge. Well, she goes on to write that later in her life, after her father had been diagnosed with Alzheimer's, she said, I would look into my father's eyes and try to reach past the murkiness of Alzheimer's with my words, my apology, hoping that in his heart he heard me and understood. And she concluded the article this way. I wish that now, all those years ago, I had led with kindness, not with ideological stridency. We are, after all, remembered in the end for how we treat others. But friends, this text is to give us a love-motivated vision for life. How we go about our days. I want you to think about what you do and why you do it and do so in the context of a love-motivated life. You see, when we're resting in Christ's love, we can actually reach out with Christ's love. When we start to love, the mundane moves to meaningful. So just think, what do you do during the day? Are you cleaning dishes and washing and preparing and cooking and planning and mowing and doing all these things? Do it from a love-motivated heart. Loving God, I love you, I receive your love, and show it. When you go to the job and you're working hard, just not another day at the salt mine, but like I'm motivated by love. To show love, that's why I'm here. Whether you're helping your kids, helping others, extending grace and, and kindness to people in need, why, why did you do that? Do it from a heart of love. In your giving, when you give to God, don't like, oh, I give, that's what we do, we're Christians. No, I give because I love. I love God. I want to see his kingdom going forward. It is a love-motivated life. When you sacrifice for others, how you handle yourself, your attitudes, your demeanor, your speech. Do you know when you're running around with that kind of crass, sarcastic attitude, you're trying to tear people up all the time? Friends, that is very noticeable. And it's very unlike our Savior. Try this, a love-motivated life. The gospel makes this a reality. Your ministry to others, why do you serve? Why do you care? Why do you make those investments? Whatever your ministry is, you do so. Why? Because it's a love-motivated life. It's saturated in the love of Christ, and it's like flowing out of your life. So what do you do, and how do you go about it? And really, it's kind of like a simple pattern, friends. It's like knowing his love, growing in it, growing to believe I'm loved unconditionally by the Father in Christ, and showing this is just the ongoing pattern of growth and maturity in Christ to make you perfect and complete, knowing, growing, showing. That is the pattern. Love your neighbor as yourself. And it's powerful, friends, when we do this. There's a guy by the name of Tim Winton. He is very popular in Australia. He's their most celebrated novelist today. He's the author of more than a dozen best-selling books, and he's got numerous literary prizes. Winton was being interviewed on an ABC television show by a guy by the name of Andrew Denton. And at one point in the conversation, it turned to Winton's well-known Christian faith. And so Denton, the interviewer, said this, you know, I want to talk about your faith. Uh, when you were, I think, about five, a, a stranger came into your family and affected your family quite profoundly. Is that right? And so Winton recounted what took place in their family. Their, his dad 
apparently a real good guy, police officer, this is in the 1960s, dad's riding a motorcycle, gets hit by a drunk driver, totally messes him up, sends him into coma for weeks, all busted up. Eventually, Tim Witten's dad is brought home, and he's like, here's this five-year-old boy, and he's, he's looking like, he kind of looks like my dad, but he's, he's all broken up, and he's, he's in terrible shape. And because he's such a big guy, Mrs. Winton, Tim's mom, had trouble even trying to pick him up to even get him to, like, the bathroom and to, to bathe him, and, and word got out. And even the local church heard about the Winton struggles. And so there's a, a guy by the name of Len Thomas from the church. Some big strapping Christian guy shows up, and he shows up like, G'day, my name's Len, you know, and I hear you're having a little trouble with your hubby to help. You know, he's given his uh, best Australian there. And he's, he comes and he picks up his dad, Tim's dad. He takes him to the bathtub and he gives him a bath. And he keeps showing up. And, and Tim writes, he said in this interview, he said, well, he shows up and he, he used to carry my dad from bed and put him in the bath and, and he used to bathe him, which in the 1960s in Australia, in the suburbs, was not the sort of thing you saw every day. And according to Winton, he said, you know, it really touched me. It touched me in that watching a grown man bother for nothing to show up and wash a sick man, you know, it really affected me. And he said this, this strangely sacrificial act was the doorway into the Christian faith for the entire Winton family. Friends, a love-motivated life is a Christ-centered life. And the implications are profound. You guys are familiar with 1 Corinthians 13? What I'd like you to do is, is take the word love out and put your name in it. Because this is what Christ in us is seeking to manifest. Put your name in this. I am patient. Your name is kind. And it's not jealous. Put your name does not brag is not arrogant, does not act unbecomingly, does not seek its own, is not provoked, does not take into account a wrong suffering, does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices in the truth. Put your name. Bears all things. Believes all things. Hopes all things. Endures all things. A love-motivated life is a Christ-centered life. That's God's vision for us. Let's pray. Lord, I want to thank you for an amazing passage of Scripture. And Lord, you know our inadequacies. We have trouble loving like this. But thank you for the gospel. Thank you for Jesus. That we are not what we once were, and you are even now bringing transformation where we can live differently through your Son. And for someone who has come here today who has never put their trust and faith in your Son, and they yearn for this kind of love and to be these kind of people. Would they simply pray with me and say, Father, I turn from my sin and my self-centeredness. And I trust in Jesus as my Savior from sin, my Lord for life. God, shape me into a love-motivated being. Lord, may that be our reality for your glory. We pray in Jesus' name.